Let's pray. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor. Almighty God, uh, Paul quotes these words. And uh, we can thank you tonight that confronted with your word, we can say we do. We are those who know the mind of the Lord. And we ask that knowing your mind better in the encounter with your word, our, our minds, our hearts, our whole beings would be expanded with a greater appreciation of who you are and how we might rightly serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we find ourselves uh, a few days in from the uh, general election. Uh, And it is, as you might expect, I can't say, I can't claim that it was deliberate that we hit a passage about the governing authorities just after that. I think actually I fixed uh, the passage on Romans for tonight before Gordon Brown fixed the election. Uh, But uh, maybe he was trying to fit in with me, I don't know. Um, But it is important to pay attention to what Paul says a little later on in Romans 13 when he says, understand the present time. Do please make sure you have that passage from Romans in front of you. And what we're going to be doing tonight is, is trying to locate this passage, fairly famous passage, Romans 13, in the business that Paul has been conducting through his letter to the church in Rome. And what is the present time as far as Paul understands it? Well, chapter 8 has ended with our waiting for our final redemption. And then in chapters 9, 10, and 11, and you perhaps have been here in these last weeks when we've looked at those, Paul's been concerned with the role of the people of Israel in the economy of God on their way to this fullness that he describes. So again, there's this sense of of waiting, being on the edge of something, but not there yet. And so with this sense of being on the edge, but not quite there, chapter 12 opened with a consideration of the present time. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, now he's saying this is what you do now. Jews, uh, leave off your rituals and focus on being living sacrifices. Gentiles, leave off your indulgence and focus on being living sacrifices. And this is the present time then in which Paul is, with which Paul has been concerned. He's awaiting an appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, an appearing that's just around the corner, as indeed it still is. 9 to 11 have been absolutely chock full of the lordship of the risen Jesus, as indeed were chapters 5 to 8 before that and chapters 1 to 4 before that. Now, if there is that confidence in St. Paul uh, in uh, these chapters, why is it that so often we come to chapter 12 and say that it's, it's quite full of nice stuff? Thank you very much, Paul. But then we we rush on to treat chapter 13 as being the real meat. This is the business of politics in the world as we know it. 
Why would we do that? Well, actually, of course, it's often no more than this, the fact that chapter 12 comes to an end and chapter 13 begins. And because we kind of get fixed in our minds that, that somehow those big numbers are important, we just stop and forget that actually that the, the letter run, runs on. And it is true that the passage we've had tonight concerns politics. But politics is the life of the polis, the city. And that is what Paul is describing precisely, but in chapter 12. The pattern of this world still exists, and he's going to cover it in chapter 13, but the priority is to transform the patterns of this world. That's in verse 2. And actually what he's doing as he's transforming the pattern of the world is he is giving us that thing that we uh, occasionally hear about uh, at the moment. He is giving us the written constitution of a new kind of politics. Chapter 12, <laughs> excuse me. <coughs> I just want to cover your mouth and then you realise it's more important to cover the microphone. <coughs> Chapter 12 unfurls as though in concentric circles from this centre at verse 1 in which the believing follower of Christ, alert to God's mercy, is involved in service. Service of God, verses 1 and 2, with the self and the gifts received, verses 3 to 8. And then now in verses 9 to 16 and 17 to 21 that we heard this evening, we see how there's transformation of relationship with others in this continuing kind of written constitution of a new politics. First, verses 9 to 16, there's a brotherly love that perseveres, and sisterly, I suppose we'd say, that perseveres and extends even in the face of affliction and when confronted with people in the fellowship who are very different from however we may be ourselves. And then, uh, second, verses 17 to 21, picking up the theme of affliction, Paul moves to consider the kind of quiet uh, moderation involved in relationship with an opposing world, living peaceably, without revenge. Verses 9 to 16 have been, um, uh, the, the, he uses words like fervent and uh, zeal. There's a tremendous uh, phrase kind of hidden from us there in verse 11. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. And the word for fervor means, be literally, it's a, it's, it's a word for a pot on the boil. That's what God wants in you. Is, is for you to be, in the best sense, continually on the boil, not in the wrong sense. To one another, we're to have a love and a passion that's on the boil. But it's exactly the opposite when it comes to our relationships uh, with a world that is negative. There it all kind of goes quiet and still. Be peaceable. Don't take revenge. And then, in this kind of quick run-through... What kind of gear change is then going on when we come to what is in front of us as chapter 13? And for centuries, political thinkers, philosophers, have read it as though we can gratefully move from chapter 12 to the world of reality. Clement Attlee, the Labour Prime Minister after the war, said that he hoped he followed Christian ethics, but he couldn't be bothered with the mumbo-jumbo. 
What do we do to a politician today who said that? Uh, he was happy to leave behind the mumbo-jumbo, and lots of people have regarded all this chapter 12 stuff, just mumbo-jumbo, really. Here at last, in chapter 13, we come to a world that we can recognize. But of course, that, it's a terrible category mistake. It assumes that Paul was stupid, that he needed, after writing all this kind of wifty stuff in chapter, uh, chapter 12, to get down to a hard hard-headed dose of reality. Instead of which, we might do well to wonder how it is that without that big number, Paul could write, maybe he had a cup of coffee in between, but no more problem more than that. The thought process was the same. How he could move from chapter 12 to chapter 13. It's right to observe that there is a very great difference between them. So massive a contrast that it must indeed be deliberate. Let me give you an example. In verse 21 of chapter 12, do not be overcome overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then throughout the beginning of the next chapter, overcome evil with the sword, judgment and wrath. I can only assume that's deliberate. He hadn't somehow forgotten how he'd finished chapter 12. Or look at uh, chapter 2 and verse 19. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Then chapter 3, sorry, chapter 13 and verse 4. uh, For the governor is God's servant to do you good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath. You lot... You leave out revenge, leave it to God and his wrath. But, now I'm in this chapter, let me tell you that the governor is precisely the agent of God's wrath that enables you to leave wrath out of it. And, if 13 was intended to be a little piece of philosophical speculation on the nature of politics, designed to stand alone for lots of medieval thinkers to worry about, Why doesn't it cover the sorts of things that we might expect? There's nothing in chapter 13 about the defense of the realm or the use of armed forces. There's nothing about international relationships or the identity of the people whose lives are governed by the authorities that are described. There is, however, quite a lot about judgment. Practical, everyday, legal judgment. So what's tying it together? Well, as so often in this series... I find that when I look hard, what's going on is something that explodes my sense of the scale of God and his Christ. The governing authorities focus on quite a limited area, judgment, and we pay for them with a bit of tax in in chapter 13. They don't have very much to do. And that's for one simple reason. Most of the functions of the state, as the ancient world conceived them, have been taken over by Jesus Christ, the risen Lord of all. Jesus is the true Israelite. Jesus is the one true man. So all identity from now on is found in him. Paul has been trying throughout chapters 9 and 11, and in some ways long before that, to, to talk to Jews and Gentiles 
And in chapter 12, he reminds them with this new uh, politics of holding them together and saying love must be genuine, not just randomly, but between the two very communities that find it hard to get on. Jesus is the true Israelite and the one true man, so all identity from now on is found in him. Leave behind your sense of racial Jewish identity. Leave behind your sense of Greek, Gentile, national identity. There can be no question from now on of there being a government that determines your national identity or can claim it in any absolute way. Chapter 13 is written to answer the questions that would be raised in what you might think of as a good Christian's mind by chapter 12. If I'm to overcome evil with good, if I live in the one society, the church of God, that's governed by the spirit of God, if I am a free member of such a society, owing my allegiance directly to Jesus Christ, then in what way might I have any use at all for a civil government? Simples, says Paul. There is a role for government because the night is only nearly over. That's part of understanding the present time, verse 11 of chapter 13. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over and the day is almost here. But it's only nearly over and it's not quite here. There is a world of people who don't yet bow the knee to Christ and for whom the appeal to overcome evil with good, it won't wash. So do notice how incredibly limited the role of the authorities is in chapter 13. Now I know, of course, we read uh, chapter 13 and there's one big question immediately comes to our mind and we kind of think it's the only question there. You're saying to yourselves, are you not? Say yes, Alan. What about Nero then? Or what about wicked despotic tyrants down the ages? What about Gordon Brown? Sorry, um, I think there's probably meant to be a pause there. Um, well, we'll get to those. But let's go straight for first for what Paul is talking about. The entire apparatus of the state, because of the new politics of chapter 12, the entire apparatus of the state has been shrunk down to, well, a bit of what we'd call, we'd call the Justice Department and enough taxes to pay for it. If you, as a believer are living in chapter 12, then you are doing right, to use Paul's language. And in terms of chapter 13 and verse 3, the ruler will hold no fear for you. Rulers hold no terror, he says, for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. But don't think because you've read chapter 12 and you're trying very hard to love your neighbor, you're trying very hard to Oh, uh, any of the other things, really, in, in chapter 12, that you're trying to hate what is evil and to cling to what is good. Don't think that because of those things you can live in a Christian ghetto, ignoring a continuing role for the state, saying, well, it's only really concerned with unbelievers. Here in the society of God, and there have been many churches down the years who have said precisely this, here in the church we're kind of basically sorted, so we, will, uh, we kind of don't have to pay any attention 
to the government outside. On the contrary, says Paul, even in the era in which Christ is Lord, the state is God's servant. It's what he calls the rulers. They are God's servants. And so we recognize the place of the state, not simply as a matter of punishment, verse 5, but also because of conscience. And we may find ourselves that if we forget who we are, if we stop doing right, then God will act in judgment against us. It's just that he will use the state as he will use it with unbelievers. So, you know, most trivial of examples. Uh, You, of course, as a community of believers living uh, in chapter 12, you do right. You have never broken a speed limit. If something for one person among us just occasionally goes wrong, then we do not find that we can appeal to the church police and say, well, I'm a believer. Um, Actually, it's okay for me to travel at 10 miles above the the, uh, recognized limit because I'm a believer. No, of course not. That's what the state is there for, even in this era. It has a purpose, but it is a limited purpose. We, the Church of God, have taken over from the Jewish people that sense of being what's called a diaspora, a nation of aliens scattered throughout a world that is not our home. We have our own political identity. It's there in chapter 12. We are a visible society of doing different. And there are times, and Paul urges us occasionally to them, to say there are times when you need to have systems of resolution for conflict within the life of the church. But secular government is still allowed a space, restricted space, yes, but it's a real space in which to maintain an order that has one purpose in God's eyes, whatever purpose it has in its own. Government exists to exercise in the world a judgment. And with this uh, intention, intention on God's part, whatever the rest of the world thinks it's up to, by ensuring a regime of punishing the wicked properly, then according to verse 4, God is doing you good. That is, the good of the church prospers when the authorities of the world restrain the evil of the world. In the church, we overcome evil with good. That's the intention. In the church, we, quote, stop passing judgment. That's a little later on in chapter 14. But in the world, there are authorities that exercise God's purpose by creating space for the good of the church, for the church's mission. They restrain evil, and they promote good, and so they deserve your support in taxes. Chapter 13 is much more radical about politics than we might expect. Let's just quickly dispense with the uh, Nero problem. The argument, of course, goes, well, what, what happens when the authorities in the world don't do what they're supposed to? When, uh, when the rulers aren't just, when they are tyrannical? Most of all, when government is persecuting believers. Are we supposed then to obey everything that the government says because Paul says so here? Well, actually, no, no, because he doesn't say that. He says submit, 
to the authorities. He doesn't say obey them. And the early apostles knew that sometimes they had to obey God rather than Caesar. What chapter 13 is about is telling us what the authorities are for. It's up to the authorities to decide whether they're going to fulfill that. It's about letting us know why it is necessary that there should continue to be a civil government. Now, of course, what I find remarkable is that I doubt whether any of us has ever given a moment's thought to why there should be. I doubt that we have that fervor, that boiling zeal for God that has left us with the question, well, if this is so fantastic, why would I need a civil government? I suspect we've just always kind of assumed it was there. And that's what amazes me about this passage, that Paul can be speaking out of a world in which there is a newly constituted social political entity, the church, in which the norm is to have this boiling fervor, in which I can well understand that it occurred to them, why should I pay taxes? I go well beyond paying taxes as I look after those who are in need around me. I go well beyond anything that the governor might want in in the community that I'm surrounded by. And wouldn't it be extraordinary if we lived with that kind of fervor and conviction about living in a chapter 12 sort of world such that we needed a chapter 13 to answer our own questions? Wouldn't it be extraordinary if we had the kind of conviction that very simply said, Jesus Christ is Lord, Caesar is not Lord. And so Caesar must simply give way. He must abandon his pretensions and confine himself to a little light judgment. There are no limits to the claims of Jesus Christ to be Lord of all. And the politicians must not claim what is now his alone to claim. Now, of course, we can give thanks that in this kind of country, we have a particular sort of heritage that builds on all of this. We have not got the kind of despotic government that has been the norm down history. And so it's not surprising if some of this strikes us as a little odd, because our governmental system takes some of the good points here and works with them. Abraham Kuyper was a Dutch prime minister of the uh, turn of the 19th century going into the 20th. He was also a philosopher and a guy who founded the Free University of Amsterdam. And he said this, There is not an inch in the whole of human existence in which Christ the sovereign of all does not cry, It is mine. And if we lived with that conviction then of course we'd find ourselves asking the question to which chapter 13 is the answer. And incidentally, of course, if we're inclined to ask, well, what about when government doesn't do this? Then we might reflect how rarely we ask of ourselves, facing chapter 12, well, what about when we don't overcome evil with good? It might be that we are those living in glass houses and throwing stones at government when we could usefully look at the politics 
by which we run our church. If we treat Romans 13 as an isolated unit, it becomes a way simply of backing the state as such, governing authorities established by God. But once we remember the thread that runs through these chapters, the political claim, and it is a political claim, that Jesus is Lord. How often have we read those, that verse in chapter 8 that says we are more than conquerors? That's a political claim. If we remember that thread, then we have it in our power to offer some very serious advice to Gordon and Nick and Dave. And it's tempting to do that. In an early draft of this, I actually wrote a letter to the Prime Minister and was going to read it out to you. But then I thought, well, actually, that's not the point. That's not what Romans 13 is there for, fun as it would be just after a general election to uh, write a letter to the Prime Minister. It's not why Paul writes it. He writes it so that believers will have some sense of the limited power available to the state, real as it is, but then to live truly according to the vast power available through Jesus Christ our Lord. Power to claim our obedience, power to inspire our effort, power to live up to the immense challenges of living with Jesus as Lord. The job of the politicians in Romans 13 is to keep enough public peace, restraining evil, rewarding justice, so that you and I can live in the much more demanding space of chapter 12, loving the brothers and serving the Lord. Let's pray together. And I just want to use that image of um, a stove and the pots that are on it. Lord God, you call us to keep our spiritual fervor. Forgive us that we so easily slide into getting more excited about an election than about you. More excited about what a government can do than about what you can do in us, with us, through us, and for us. It may be that we have turned down the burners beneath the pot of our spiritual life, and turned up the burners under the pot of our politics. Set it back as it should be, Lord, and bring us to the boil again, fervent in zeal for the cause above else, above all else, of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that all else takes only its proper perspective. Amen.